0: Arriving at the conclusion to the final exhortation of the entire sermon of the book of Hebrews. I forgot to jot down how many weeks now we have worked our way through the book of Hebrews together, but it has been a portion of time, as you are well aware. Here we do arrive at the final exhortation, and then next week we will handle the benediction of the text, and then the final Sunday of our time in the book of Hebrews will be the reading of the text together, uh, which should be the 21st, if the date is correct on that. As we approach this final exhortation in this time of the sermon, the apostle directs the church's attention there, as has been read for you, to follow the present leadership in place. Confidence and submission to the leadership of the local church has already been a theme that he established earlier in this final exhortation. If you look with me in chapter 13, just briefly back one page, perhaps in your text, it is in mine, verse 7, he already began this theme of remembering and submitting and following after the current leadership by first recognizing, submit, remember, recall your former leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And now here, at this moment, he speaks of the current leadership in place, not just the former, but the present leadership. And he calls for the church to acknowledge them, obey them, and submit to them. If you look over in chapter 13, you'll notice also in verse 24, at the final kind of greeting, or as his farewell is noted here in verse 24, greet also, he says, all your leaders. If we put these comments together, it seems to be that there is evidence in the text of a tension within the church that is present there between their leaders and their congregants. There, there is some sort of a tension. We are sure that this speaks of evidence of that tension. Perhaps, as he exhorts them, greet them, not with a cold shoulder, but welcome them. Obey them. Submit to them. Remember them. There's some sense of a tension. If we look at it, in the topics that he's been handling here in the text, what is the nature of the tension? Certainly as we think of current church life, many of us with varied church histories, tension between elders and congregants is nothing new, and it is nothing all that rare, unfortunately. To get at the nature of the tension here within this text seems to be That perhaps, I put forward three things, perhaps, given the theological themes of the passage, the elders in place who are currently teaching and preaching are perhaps too rigid on the distinctives of the gospel. They spend too much time articulating the differences between the law and the gospel, worrying over nothing. Constantly chattering as though they are the last defense theologically for everybody. I get there because it seemed to be that that is our theme for several weeks is the distinction between law and the gospel. This is what he writes to them to maintain. And now he stands as a fellow leader with his vote of confidence upon the present leadership. Stay with them. Obey. Submit to them. As they do maintain rightfully, according to this sermon, a distinction between the law and the gospel, a distinction that is critical for us to grasp and maintain. But perhaps the church, desiring to return to the law, keeps hearing their elders speak about the deadness of the law and the power and provision of the gospel, and they roll their eyes and say, Our elders are too rigid on the distinctions of the law and the gospel. Perhaps secondly, I think, as we consider the content of this sermon, perhaps the elders presently, the leadership there within the church, is too restrictive in their manner of living. They could be too puritanical, though that's anachronistic. Surely we recognize historically the Puritans did come a long time after this. Either way, they are in some sense perhaps just too rigid, too separatist, too removed from current life. Why do I go there? Because in verse 7 he says, remember their manner of life. Imitate that. Nah, too separatist, too annoying. Perhaps it is, I put forward one More, as we consider the content of the sermon, that he now calls those present to obey and submit. Perhaps it is judged that the congregants think the elders are simply too direct in their calls for obedience and faithfulness in living. Remember, he spoke to us about sexual ethics within this final exhortation. Calls. For lives of purity that matter, that stand in harmony with the seventh commandment. Well, I'm no adulterer. Is that all that God does speak of in the seventh commandment? We did affirm together this morning, collectively. No. But any debaucherous thought, action, behavior. So the elders there did maintain also keep a spirit and a heart and actions that are sexually pure in keeping with the gospel. Perhaps the elders are seen as too direct in their call. You don't understand the the circumstances. You don't understand our non-formal but certainly present agreement one with another as we engage in these sexual acts. You just don't get it. No matter the perception of the current leadership team on the ground, the apostle boldly calls for the church there to put away dismissive spirits toward the current leadership, the eye roll, the shoulder shrug. He says, put it aside and obey actively. Don't maintain a spirit of, I'm somehow neutral. He calls for action. Obey and submit to the elders on the ground. He puts what we could say an apostolic vote of confidence upon the current leadership on the ground. He speaks as though he is one of them. He wrote this sermon to have it delivered to them. Not as some bystander without skin in the game. But as one who cares for them. Loves them. You remember chapter 2. He heard the gospel with them. He knows them. Cares for them. And he's putting himself in line with the elders who are on the ground. Obey them. Submit to them. Taking a topic like this directly out of our text as we strive to continue with the thought flow of the book. I started thinking on this for a while and what this means for the church here and now. I'm going to list 10 reasons why you ought to submit to me. No. I thought that was a great way to fill myself up this week of thinking about how the church just needs to get in line. After I listed about 50 reasons why, I pared it back. But I do want to address the text that is addressing me and is addressing you. We together are God's people. All of us in the room are under the weight of its content. All of us are responsible for how we receive it and act by faith with it. All of us. So to pretend as though I'm not an elder here would not do obedience to the text either. To be lording over you as though I am the only elder here and the only one worthy or Dan or Todd and demand weird things about following would be poor stewardship of the text as well. So in thinking of this text, there are two questions I want to ask. And I trust I'll be able to answer these two questions together that will help us receive wisely as stewards together at this church this particular text for elders and congregants and that is these two questions number 1 what is godly leadership this is this, this is the question we're asking what is godly leadership and then number 2 what is a godly congregation what what does this look? What is based on not my feelings or constitution? As we spoke, I would have particulars that I would bring to the table, concerns that I would have, attitudes I would have, dispositions I would have, judgments that I would have that can't be in play, but in submission to the text. Does the text describe what godly leadership is? And furthermore, does the text describe? what a godly congregation is, I would put forward to you, it does. And I hope to be able to ask those two, what is godly leadership? What is a godly congregation? And answer them both, that together we would receive it by faith and walk in obedience. So, number one, what is godly leadership according to this text? Uh, in looking upon this text, I have identified what I think present to be five marks that define godly leadership. So, certainly, um, as we consider the text in this way, as elders, for Todd, for Dan, for myself, as elders, putting forward a text that says, this is what godly leadership is, certainly places, not the new spotlights we have hung from the beam back there that lights me up real bright. I don't know if you've noticed. I have less dark circles, I think, uh, this morning. It certainly, more than that, shines a light upon us as leaders as we begin to think and meditate upon what is being described here for our portion in leadership to the local church and for your, in this moment, continued thought and advancement and consideration of the godly leadership that is present. Five marks, mark number one in this text first of five marks of what is godly leadership number one we start with godly leadership is a plurality of leaders that's what it is godly leadership is a plurality of leaders how do we get there we'll consider verse 7 of chapter 13 again a theme of leadership that he's been developing in this final exhortation you see it as i do in verse 7 remember your leaders plural remember them all of them Those who spoke to you, the congregation, the word of God. Remember them. This is the structure that is assumed in the text for godly leadership. That it is a plurality of leaders. Remember your leaders. He calls you to not mark one man's faith and obey. Not follow the outcome of one man's preaching. But remember your leaders. Verse 7. Same with our text in verse 17. That was the former leadership that was there. Here, present on the ground is the same collective language. Obey your leaders. Verse 18 is the apostle kind of unites himself to them as one of their leaders. He says in verse 18, pray for us. And verse 24 that we have already noted verse 24 greet all your leaders if we were to go beyond this final exhortation where clearly is he speaking of a theme of leadership in the local church that he calls the congregation to note imitate obey and submit there must be present within godly leadership a plurality of those godly leaders In Acts, I cite for you three more texts to consider in the New Testament just so we would see that this final exhortation isn't the only place where leaders in the local congregation or those who preside over the local house churches is a plurality. Acts 4.23, you see there as the church in the book of Acts is being formed into its organized bodies. He does not appoint the best CEO possible. He appoints leaders, with an S, over every church. Titus 1.5, if I did not give you that full citation, it's Acts 14.23. Titus 1.5, for you to consider even further, as Paul speaks to Titus, I left you there in Crete to appoint elders in every church. Plural. It is always the working assumption in the New Testament, as has been formulated in Acts, is there is a plurality of leaders among the people of God. We would continue, it has always been that way among the people of God, considering leadership structures even among Israel. James 5.14. Maybe you have read that text and uh, battled that thought of exactly what's going on in James 5.14 with the consideration of sickness. And if there is a sickness, let that individual ask for prayer of the elders, plural. That assumes that there's elders, plural, present, that they might call upon their elders to be with them and to pray for them. God has so structured the local church to be governed and led By a plurality of leadership. I noted three things for myself. This is the part where I speak to my own experience as being part of an elder team. There are three things that pop up to me of why this makes sense for me. I think Dan and Todd would both agree. I didn't email them this manuscript and get their thoughts. But I think they would share to some degree. One thing that pops up of why it makes sense that God would so wisely govern and lead his church with plurality of leaders is because, one, individual deficiencies are made up for. It, 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 right? I mean, I, I, I'm not all things. All of you probably think I'm very narrowly one thing, uh, and I, I probably would nod and agree. It, individual deficiencies are present it just, you, you can't be and I think that when, when we go under leadership that is a singular man out front we see a lot of deficiencies and it hurts the congregational life that a single man with the strengths aids but at the same time brings deficiencies that sometimes are almost too much to bear and so the strength too is often rejected because of the presence of the ongoing deficiencies that hurt or otherwise undermine the strength that is present. Individual deficiencies are made up for. I thought another thing that just makes sense for me as well, biblically, by way of evidence in local church life and submission to this text, individual judgments are aided by multiple voices. Again, this comes back to constitution and hardwiring. I look at a certain situation. I, uh, you know, all of us right now, if we saw a car accident is, again, we speak of these kind of things all the time. You see one car accident, and again, you view it in a particular way. Why do you view it that way? Well, there's tons of reasons why. There, there, there's, I mean, we could go back and we could begin our Freudian analysis of each other's upbringing, and we'd all say, well, it all started back when you were in kindergarten. That kid didn't give you that. You're like, it did. It affected the whole way that I hoard and possess over everything I have. And So when I see this, I cast a judgment for the person who had it first. Well, what about the person who needed it? Well, it doesn't matter, remember? And we're, we're, there's so many factors and nuances in play when a man is asked to weigh in on a situation of another. There are things present that only one man's mind can't fully and perfectly adequately account for. Even in his best of days. I mean, do we need to look at the news lately on grand juries and some of those things? And all of us right now would weigh in in a particular way. Why would we all think the various ways that we do? Why are we seeing the explosive responses that we are? Because there are so many nuances in place for one man's judgment of a particular situation than another. All of those things come to bear in leading local congregations. Individual judgments. Aided by multiple voices. You know, I run out and I say, let's discipline them. Let's run them all out of the church. We'll start over. Somebody says, hang on, hang on, hang on. Maybe it's not that drastic. Right. Maybe it's not. The third thing I thought of myself in some of these examinations of godly leadership is that individual gifts are rightly identified And their role of service is clearly defined and thereby the church is strengthened. I think again of individual giftedness among the elders. There's particular roles in which you're going to serve and ways in which those gifts are accentuated by others. They're aided. You do this and it's great, but it's even made stronger, more able, more clearly definable as another comes alongside and gives shape to it. And then they, they see you in that, in that place, and you thrive, and you grow, and that aids them, and you see them in that place instead of one man trying to do all things poorly. There's some things that one man is gifted at, and another man is gifted at, and another man is gifted at, and all those things come to bear to where the church is strengthened according to each one's gifts. I just, I warn you, I would be the worst administrator We've ever had, or conceived of, if I had to do the tasking that Dan does, it, it would just it would go poorly, very poorly. So we ought to see and recognize giftedness, effectiveness, things that get executed and executed well. Aids all of us in local church life and the advancement of the ministry and the gospel by multiple men, godly leadership. Is a plurality of leaders. That's evidence from the text. And then I cite for you three thoughts just for myself in consideration of its strength. Secondly, the second consideration of godly leadership and identifying it within the local congregation what is godly leadership? Number two, godly leadership is diligent. I cite for you from the text the comment of diligence among godly leaders is the language there in verse 17 obey your leaders submit to them for they are keeping watch we pause there before we go over into the content of their watching and we just acknowledge that godly leaders it is assumed by the apostle here as he casts his vote of confidence behind the current leadership he identifies them as proper leaders and anyone who would then be a proper leader in christ's church is one who keeps watch he is a man of diligence. The verb, maybe it is of importance here because of the severity with which Christ used the same language. The verb being used here for translating keep watch is used by Christ in his exhortation to his disciples regarding his return. He speaks to them and tells them to stay alert. It's translated, I believe, in the ESV as Stay awake. This is the mark of godly leadership that the apostle also uses here to translate the diligence, the due diligence of elders in the local church. They are those who keep watch. That is, they care. They keep their thumb on the pulse of the congregation. They do so with one another in discussion. And they do so as they approach the congregants. They keep their thumb on the pulse of those that they care for. It isn't because they're great elders. It's because they're elders. It isn't something we ought to just rejoice in, that we somehow have found. We ought expect leaders in Christ's church, if they are to be leaders in Christ's church, they are men of diligence. It isn't a shock factor. It isn't a particular blessing. It is what God has called men to do in the church. Be those who keep watch. Who care. And they do so in a spirit without regard for themselves. That is, elders, if they are to be that. Those who keep watch. They don't do so with a primary watchfulness on their return in the matter. Do you see? Ministry isn't manipulation. It isn't to say a good word in order to leverage favor. It is to say a word of care, time of concern, because the elder is called of Christ to render service to him. Godly leadership is to stay alert and be diligent. Number three, if we could say the third thing of what is godly leadership, it is a plurality of men. It cannot be by a soul man. It must be aided also by men who are diligent in keeping watch over those entrusted to their care. And it is thirdly, godly leadership is to be eternally helpful. Helpful. Godly leadership is to be eternally helpful. Why do I suggest that? Because in the text you look, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are due diligent. They are. That that is what they are. If they are not, then they are not your leaders. They are, the leaders, are keeping watch. They're diligent men and they're watching, not your happiness, but they are watching over your soul. That is, godly leadership recognizes in our interactions one with another why it is that elders seek to do what they do in service to Christ. Why they formulate a particular plan of attack and caring for their local church. Why they consider prayerfulness as due diligence for those who attend their church. Why they structure programs, set up events and gatherings. Why they do do it in a plan of attack is because they know by conviction from this text if no other that eternal issues are at stake in the lives of each one who attends. They keep watch, they're due diligent over your souls. That's why. They recognize, they receive from the Lord that eternal issues are at stake in the lives of the congregation. This means, very practically, that godly leadership is willing. We ought to expect this from our elders. That godly leadership is willing to sacrifice being perceived. I have that circled in my notes, perceived, a key word there. Godly leadership is willing to sacrifice being perceived as immediately relevant. in order to be eternally helpful. You didn't give me those five-point breakdowns in a way that I could concretely apply them to my calendar. That seemed largely philosophical, lacked practicality. I'm not suggesting that elders don't need in their preaching to be men who are practical. Offer something that is important, tangible, able to be digested by those who gather expectantly on Lord's day. I came to hear a word, and I heard none. While the elders must strive, certainly, to be more clear, Paul, in fact, requests prayer for the clarity of his preaching. So, indeed, it is elders, and we do strive to get better, to become more clear. But there is a debate and a difference over what is clear, over what is relevant. And the elders must make that choice as those who guide Christ's church according to their calling. What is relevant that the congregation must know. And therefore we are able and we are willing To be perceived in our preaching, in our teaching, in our care over the soul of the congregation. To be perceived as irrelevant in order to be what we know is eternally helpful. This means the content, very practically, the content of their ministry will be Christ. If it is that you give care to another, you diligently care for the soul, and you recognize that there's eternal issues at stake, the content of the ministry to service that need is Christ and Christ alone. That will be the content of the ministry. Cotton Mather once stated it this way. Exhibit as much as you can of a glorious Christ. That is the duty of the minister. To exhibit as much as you can of a glorious Christ. Yea, let the motto upon your whole ministry be, Christ is all. Let others, men, develop the pulpit fads that come and go. But let us specialize in preaching our Lord Jesus Christ. Elders who are elders by grace in the calling of Christ will fill the content of their ministry with Christ because they receive that eternal issues are at stake in the life of the congregation. They are diligent men who seek to be eternally helpful. Fourth mark, then, in this text of those who are diligent over the souls of the congregation. The fourth mark of what they are or what is godly leadership like, it is men who are sober-minded. Number four, godly leadership is sober-minded. Where do we see this in the text? It's a scribe of those who are leaders. If you are a leader, this is what will mark your ministry. If these don't mark your ministry, you are not a leader. This is how the text is working, as the apostle describes the current leadership. This is, I know, what they're doing. Not like at that particular location, and the other locations, they might not be doing that. This is what leaders do. This is who they are. If they're not, then they're not leaders. This is the mark of an elder. He is a man who is sober-minded about his ministry. How so? They care as those, verse 17, as those. This is the mark of their care. They receive as those who will have to give an account. They are not flippant in their ministry. They're sober-minded because of this text. They will give an account to the Lord. Godly leadership grasps the weightiness of their task. Where does it come from in this sermon? In Hebrews, where does the weightiness come from? It is, as we read even this sermon, godly leaders know well the great importance with which God regards His church. Because he purchased her with the blood of his son. Therefore, men of scripture are sober-minded in their ministry. They are not flippant with the church. They don't ride the tidal wave of fads. They don't get behind celebrity ministers. They're those who recognize the sober-mindedness ought be present, for God does care what we do here. How much does He really care, though? Well, we are reminded, He purchased this church with the blood of Christ. This is of particular importance in sober-mindedness regarding ministry. Were we reminded also by James that teachers are held to a higher standard? There are those who receive that, recognizing that call, and they are marked with a sober mind. This is particularly important, perhaps in our day and age, where the church, as we look even at recent scandals of mega churches, one after another, When the church has shifted its identifying mark for a leader, for an elder, to be him who can pass the best test of CEO capabilities. Who's the best manager here? I'm not. I I tell you, I'm not. (laughs) I wouldn't pass the boot camp tests. No, you laugh because you think there's not boot camps. There are. They're boot camps for ministers, whereby those with clipboards sit by. I don't think it involves push-ups or anything cardio-related. I think they're testing other skill sets, perhaps wordiness, which when the content is listened to, we find out it's much more like a gift of gab than the content of theology. But it's enough to arouse the congregation. You know, keep them alert, not sleeping. He passes class one. It goes on from there because we need this man to be the best CEO possible for the local church because really it is built on a business paradigm. We need him to manage the managers next. Who's the most able, capable, persuasive among us? They become the managers. And then the pastor or elders now manage the managers who manage the minions. That's the part you guys play. And we recognize as we receive that, corrosion slowly but surely starts taking place. And we find out at some point we've been had for an Amway project in the local church. That, though, is the mark of godly leadership Amway soldiers. Persuasive men. I can rouse the troops. Before you know it, you're selling pamphlets with my name on it. But if we look at the text, that doesn't mirror sober judgment. It's not the mark of a man who recognizes I manage the managers who manage the managers who manage the minions. Is that mark of sober-mindedness as one who will give an account for the managers who are manager, the managers and manager of the minions? Is that a, a sober-mindedness? Don't you care how the managers manage the managers and manage the minions? Don't you care what's going on out at the grassroots level? You give an account. Not to popularity, but to God and to faithfulness. You better care. Godly men are marked by a sober mindedness about their ministry because God purchased this local church with the blood of Christ. Following the call for sober mindedness, Scottish pastor John Brown once wrote to a young minister. He says this in a letter that he wrote to him. I know the vanity of your heart. Wouldn't you love that, receiving that from a senior minister? (laughs) Open it up and think it's a note of encouragement. And it kind of in one way is, but not in that first sentence. I know the vanity of your heart, that you feel mortified, that your congregation is very small particularly in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ, you will think you certainly had enough. This flies in the face of CEOs as pastors. And Amway projects in the church. The mark of true leaders in Christ's church. Are those who are sober minded. In their judgments. Regarding congregational size. Congregational life. Preaching, teaching, praying, caring. The fifth mark. I said there were five. We approached the fifth. In answering the question. What is godly leadership? Godly leadership, number five, maintains a spirit of weakness. Godly leadership maintains a spirit of weakness. This is a challenge, as we hear from the Scottish minister just a moment ago, for many of us. Well, I don't say many of us, I say all of us. It is a challenge for ministers to maintain a spirit of weakness there is a vanity in the heart there is a desire for congregations to be thousands i don't think that there would be any minister to stand in the place of honesty and say he wasn't that minister that the scottish minister wrote to because we all given our industry battle the flesh No matter where we're at, no matter what the industry is, mine just happens to be particularly in front of a bunch of people. But we all have that sin principle that remains deep within. No matter what we're striving toward. And so it is a mark of each one of us by grace, and particular here in this text, it is a mark of a minister or godly leaders to maintain a spirit of weakness. How do I get there? Look at the text here as he says, verse 18. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Godly leadership, according to that comment there of pray for us, knows that they are to serve, according to this text, if you look there, Pastor Adam, Dan, Todd are to perform our work here for your sake as unto Christ with a clear conscience. Note that one, a clear conscience. Godly leadership recognizes the call for a clear conscience in their dealings one with another. Secondly, they recognize in this text we are to act honorably in some things. Wait, no, in all things. We are to act honorably in all things. So they recognize the call for a clear conscience, the call to act honorable in all things. And thirdly, they know themselves. So when a godly minister, a man called of Christ to serve his church, hears the high calling of service to Christ in his blood-bought church, They then, knowing themselves and the high calling that is before them, they say with Paul, by faith, who is sufficient for these things? Who? Who can do that? Who can, without question, maintain a clear conscience in all things? Everything he does, including his preaching, how can he maintain A clear conscience. That every motive was right. Every attitude was sincere. How is it that they can maintain and act honorably in every matter on the table before them without seeking themselves, without advancing themselves, without manipulating others when they know very clearly themselves? It is these men who then in humility Ask their church to pray for them. Perhaps it is some who would say, I know myself and I'm able, without a doubt, to act in every matter with a clear conscience and act honorably in all things. I would suggest to you to run out the door. That's a CEO being a CEO. But in the heart of ministry, life is more complex than that. The flesh is ever present in every man, every woman, every minister, every local church. What are we to do about it? Recognize, one, the supremacy of Christ, and two, the need for prayer. Their elders recognize we must maintain a spirit of weakness, not pride. And in order to do it, I need your help. Pray for us as we lead the congregation at Redeemer that it would be able for us to lead with a clear conscience we gather for our budgetary meetings real brass tacks here maybe I'm getting too practical for my own liking we're meeting for our budgetary meetings coming up I think uh, this Friday pray for us that in all things I wouldn't put forward to you that were swindlers. Uh, but again, there are weighty tasks. So pray for your elders that they would serve you, the congregants, with a clear conscience in every budgetary line item. That we would seek actively to act in honor. Where there seems to be in the working with people's lives. So many gray areas. Ways to leverage. Elders would be marked on ways to submit, draw back, care for others in an honorable way. Pray, for godly leadership recognizes they must maintain a spirit of weakness. So the apostle says himself, pray for us. The final question that I must ask and answer as I did ask at the introduction and it won't be nearly as long as the first answer but the second question is what then is a godly congregation? If that is the mark of godly leadership what is a godly congregation? I note for you three things in brief that are present in the text quite clearly. Number one, a godly congregation Those who willingly obey and submit to God. They willingly obey and submit to God. And, I do have an and that follows. And, by extension of submission to Him. And and that's a critical transition there. A godly congregation is one that submits themselves unto God and by extension of submission to Him, they receive, submit to, and obey the elders whom God has appointed for their care. I submit to Him. He has appointed unto me for the service of my perseverance and growth these men to honor him i receive them as his instruments that is a godly congregation number 2 a godly congregation is one that promotes the joy of their elders look at the, look at the text verse 17 obey your leaders Again, we identify who they are. We've worked on that. They must be this or they're not the leaders. Therefore, you don't need to obey. But if they are these men, obey them and submit to them. As you follow down through the text after they give an account, it says, let them do this. Let them care for you. Let them lead you. Let them guide you with joy. Let them do it with joy. He's calling upon the congregation, let your elders do this for you with joy. It's up to you. Let them do it for joy. He calls upon the church, do it. And do it in such a way that your elders have joy in caring for you. The question that might arise in something like this is how? How can I promote the joy of my ministers? This is where I could really get going, right? You're like, okay, let's see how biblical he is here. Let's see how he's walking the text here. Application immediately available. No. The question of the text is how might I do that? How can I give joy to you, my ministers? How? How? if we draw to john the apostle we could clearly identify one way in which we saw a minister himself receive joy from his congregation i cite for you third john 4 and i know that i would speak the same language I know Pastor Dan, Todd, we would speak the same language of this text. In 3 John 4, this is how we would ask of you, Redeemer Community Church, to aid in our joy in serving you. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy. Same term, here we are dealing with joy in ministry. I have no greater. How can I aid you, Pastor Adam, in having joy in the ministry? This is how. Walk in the truth. That gives us joy. We walk. You walk. We walk. In truth. Don't gather here around fads. Don't participate in worship only when it seems exuberant. You be exuberant. Get fired up. Walk in truth. That will fire up the ministers. That will give joy to leading. I want to teach. I want to help. I want to be eternally helpful to you. And aid me and those here to do it in a spirit of joy by walking in the truth that's provided. Then we're all walking around with smiles. We hold hands and sway. We're having joy because it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about Christ and his truth being expressed. We see him in the center as we go like this, and we're looking. And we're all smiling we're not like looking at each other that would bring us low we look to him and that aids in joy for all of us let your ministers do this in joy that is a godly congregation thirdly and finally we're landing the plane on the third and final mark of a godly congregation A godly congregation is one that regularly prays for its elders. You obey this text and you pray for your elders. That's a godly congregation. You receive their word. You've tested their doctrine. You've joined in membership because of it. You hear it and receive it by faith. And your faith is feasting on those texts. And you pray for those men that they might continue to feed your faith with a clear conscience, acting honorably in all things as Christ has appointed them to my care. There is one last note of the text. It does come with a warning that if you fail to do this, If your mode of operation is a cantankerous spirit. If you roll your eyes at the theological teaching that is present. Shrug it off and always remain antagonistic to it. You fail to care and pray for the elders that are present. Look at the text. If you fail to do this. And your elders are marked by groaning. There is no advantage to you. It's not just the ministers who will be groaning. When the ministers groan, there is no advantage for you. Your own perseverance wanes. Calvin concludes, we cannot be troublesome within the church. Disobedience toward our pastor's without at that same time hazarding our own salvation. Let us together, elders, congregants, walk in joy, because Christ is a content of Redeemer's life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray. Right now as we have solicited the prayers of our congregation for its leadership. And as the leadership is also called to fulfill its duty in praying for them. We then do right now obediently pray. One with another. And one for another. That you would allow us to walk in joy as a local church. Because we are following you. You are the content of our church life. Let us serve you faithfully as leaders and let the congregation allow us to do it with joy as they submit to you and thereby unto us. In your name we do pray and praise you that Christ is our mediator. Amen.